Well, good morning and happy new year. Uh, my name is Dan Montgomery. I'm the youth pastor here, in case you, you don't know me. Uh, uh, Randy Anderson, our, our head pastor, is on vacation here this, this past week, so uh, it's my turn to preach to kick off uh, the year here. And um, my goal this morning is to begin the year looking in the right direction. Uh, I'm sure as we've come to the end of the year, maybe you've read articles that uh, are, are looking ahead with, with hope or, or fear for various reasons towards this next year, or, or recap articles kind of looking back at the 2022. Um, those are all fine and good, uh, but our goal this morning is, is not looking backwards in reflection, it's not looking forward in anticipation, uh, but, but up lifting our, our minds and our hearts to God. Right? That's what we need to start off the new year well, to start it off right, is a view of God and to see ourselves in light of God. So that, that's what we're going to be doing as we consider Psalm 36, verses 5 to 9. Um, I'd, I'd recommend you opening your Bibles there, Psalm 36, verses 5 to 9. And, and today, as we consider these verses... Um, we're going to see that God's creation is a rich banquet of which he is the Lord, and we are ultimately merely his guests. Nothing compares, we'll see, to the goodness of our host, and everything comes from the goodness of our host. And therefore, our lives should recognize the goodness of our host. And, and as we work this, through this psalm, one question, though, may come to your mind, um, may enter some of our minds, and I'll, I'll address it later. But the question is this. If God's creation is such a, a rich banquet, if it's so abundant and delightful as uh, this psalm asserts that it is, why then is there so much discontentment? Why are so many of us so unsatisfied, right? If we're living in a good world created by and cared for by a good and abundant God, why are we not more satisfied? So that's been one of the questions that may linger and we'll get addressed in our, our psalm this morning. Let me just give actually a preliminary answer, kind of a little, little, little hook, a little, little sample, like when you walk around Costco and you get the little sample of the artichoke dip or whatever it is. Right, this is the little, the little sample. It comes from actually a quote um, and on a, from a book that's on my shelf. It was written by an Orthodox priest in the 1970s, and yet I read it about 10 years ago, and I find myself thinking about it far more often than I probably would have thought when I first picked it up and heard that description. But there's a, an author by the name of Alexander Schmemann who wrote a book called For the Life of the World, and he said this. I think it's relevant. He said, man, mankind, is a hungry being. Right? Probably relate to that, right? We're hungry people. But he is, a, he is hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desire is finally a desire for him. That was from For the Life of the World. So let's stand together. I will read Psalm 36. Our focus this morning is on verses 5 to 9, but I will uh, actually read the whole psalm so we get the context. 
And then I'll pray with our prayer this morning, actually based on Psalm 117. So Psalm 36. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are, tr- mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take, sh- take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let's pray. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For Great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Just as the psalm says, Lord, we do praise you. We praise you for making yourself known. We we praise you for making your your steadfast love and faithfulness known to us. That, That we here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, in the year 2023, can know you. That we can, we could even be the focus, the recipients of your steadfast love and faithfulness, Lord. We thank you. We, we praise you for the way your glory and your gospel have spread across the globe. To even reach us here so far away from where it began uh, 2,000 years ago. People and nations very different than our nation, right? All are your people. Over the centuries, Lord, we think about, and and across the globe, your word has been fruitful. It has multiplied. It has not returned void. You have indeed ransomed for yourself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We praise you. We thank you. And we also, we pray for Our missionaries, specifically the missionaries sent out from this church, we pray that they would be faithful. We pray that you would meet their work with power. We pray that they would just have the the patience that's needed to be a faithful worker in the different places you've called them and sent them. We pray that you would raise up more laborers, more who are willing to go and make all of us excited to, to support this mission of yours. We want you to be glorified, all nations to praise you, all peoples to praise you. So be glorified, Lord. 
And as we've gathered as a church family in this particular place on this specific morning, what we ask right now is that you'd meet us with the grace and the power that we need. We ask that you'd, you'd open up our, our ears so that we can actually hear your word. You'd open up our eyes so we can actually see your goodness. Lord, fill us with, with gratitude for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Let us see genuinely how praiseworthy you are. And as we've gathered, Lord, we admit that we're coming from many places and are of many different mindsets. Um, Certainly with Christmas and New Year's and so many joyful things just passed, many of us have much to be thankful for, for family. We thank you for friends. We thank you for feasts. We thank you for fun in the snow. We thank you for safe travels. So many good gifts we could go on. Um, But many of us mourn as well. Many of us limp along. Um, We do think especially of the Odlin family this morning and the sudden passing of Oli this past week. May your comfort and presence and, and the truth of your promises and the hope that we have in Christ, may that be especially close and near to them in this season. Again, Lord, meet us all with the specific grace we need this morning. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, you can be seated. As you heard, as I read, uh, this psalm begins with a a description of the wicked, right? Right Uh, right there in verse 1, we see that for the wicked, there's this pull towards evil. That that, that transgression has a strong hold on him, right? Where the pull towards God... It's hardly existent. We saw that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. It's like it has a direct line to the wicked. And he goes on, the, the fear of God is not before his eyes, right? The, the controlling influence of God is, is cut off. It's blocked. The wicked, as David describes him, think of him thinks of himself as very independent. Uh, he thinks of himself as, as, as self-made, and his own judge, accountable to, to nobody. And this may seem, seem glamorous at times. I think sometimes we really like the idea of someone who's, who's their own judge, someone who's, who's self-made. You know, even as I was shopping this past Christmas season, I was at Barnes & Noble, and I was in the kids' section, and I saw a biography of a, a particular uh, person, and it was this guy, and it was a self-made man. That was kind of the, the catch line. Of, wow, this guy is really impressive. He's a self-made man. Man, wow. Um, that's why you'd want to pick up this biography and hand it to your kids so they, too, can know uh, just how impressive this self-made man is. Um, but that mindset is disastrous. <laughs> it's foolish. Um, and that's what David wants to show us in this psalm. That's why he switches after verses 1-4 to four to abruptly switch in, David, in verse 5. David switches our focus and his focus completely on God. It's like he, he just took, uh, you've been on uh, FaceTime on a video call on your phone, and you've got the front-facing camera, and you're talking, and then you just hit the one button, boop, switches it all around, completely changes the focus, right? So you're talking to someone. I'm at the store, and I'm talking to Jane, and she says, I'm like, which bread did you want me to pick up? And I can't, I'm just confused. And so I hit the turnaround button, and boom, I'm showing her the rack of bread. She's able to 
deftly guide me to the right one, right? Completely switched the focus there. That's what David does here. He hits that button, switches the camera around. It's no longer on the wicked. It's no longer focused on man. It's focused on God. And he gives us God in his goodness. He lists a number of attributes or character traits, we may say. So as you look there in verse 5 and verse 6, he talks about your steadfast love. Or if you have the King James or I think the NIV, I might just merely say mercy. It's this dip, d- deep, rich Hebrew word, hesed. Sometimes just translated kindness, but really like covenant committed love. Your covenant committed love. Deeply attached to what David lists next. Your faithfulness. Then in verse 6, your righteousness, your judgments. Right? He, he gathers together these character traits of God. And each attribute is described in a way that's most to, supposed to kind of make us crane our necks to try and take in its grandeur. Like if you've been walking downtown in a big city, you know, growing up, going to Chicago, you'd be walking downtown, there'd be the Sears Tower, you'd try and look up to take in the grandeur of this skyscraper, and you can't quite do it no matter how much you look up. That's kind of what David is doing with us here. He's saying your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your righteousness, your judgments. Wow, can you crane your neck and try and take in How great and amazing they are. Your steadfast love, O Lord. It extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. We can try and take it all in, but boy, I don't think we're going to be able to do it. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. The judgments are like the great deep. You can try and mine into or dive into the depths, but you're never going to exhaust it. The cumulative point of just throwing all these attributes and all these descriptions on top of each other, the cumulative point is that there is nothing like God's goodness. Oh, sure, other things may be good, but not infinitely good like he, the things he lists here. I mean, I think we, we understand that, but we could maybe get a deeper understanding of that as we think of, of, of trying to apply some of the praise that we're told to give God to other things. So just a moment ago, a pastoral prayer was based on Psalm 117, where it says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Now imagine that it said, Praise, fill in the blank, all nations. Extol, fill in the blank, all peoples. What person, idea, ideal, combinations of things could possibly go in that blank and make any sense? What could possibly be worthy of the praise of all nations? To be extolled by all people. There's certain things that may grab a lot of people's attention, right? Not long ago was the World Cup, and so many nations were paying attention. But, could, I mean, if the World Cup was still going on, if it just kept going, wouldn't it kind of get old after a while? Even all nations, the most invested in it, would kind of after a while be like, oh, there's still that tournament going on, isn't it? Hmm. 
Maybe give us another thought experiment, another, another fill in the blank. The great commandment in Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. Again, think about that. You shall love, fill in the blank, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Is there anything else you could place all of your love upon that would not crack underneath it? It's not just that it would be idolatrous and wrong. It's that it would be foolish. Imagine anything else worthy of loving with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. That wouldn't just be completely disappointing. Even the strongest of good things are fragile. Let me give you one example that's been on my mind. Bo Jackson. I got a new biography for Christmas, biography of Bo Jackson. I've been pouring through it and really enjoying it. If you don't know who Bo Jackson was, he was probably the greatest physical specimen ever, uh, the greatest natural athlete ever, and around 1990, in the late 80s, an absolute cultural phenomenon. He was a superstar in the NFL and in Major League Baseball. He was his, his... the, the video game version of him is the greatest video game like athlete ever, if that can possibly be a thing. Um, there was a Saturday morning cartoon I can remember watching where him and Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky were essentially superheroes just because of their athleticism, saving the day. Bo Jackson, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, right? He was just thought of, right? I loved sports and I loved many athletes, but he was well beyond anyone else. Like, Wow superstar in football and in baseball. I can't, I couldn't believe it. And in this, in this biography, many other people are, are, are giving the same testimony of, wow, we'd never seen anything like Bo Jackson. His, his college baseball coach at Auburn, who came in his junior year, uh, gave this testimony. He said that, in my career, I saw four or five guys total who had the type of power Bo possesses. Three or four who could run like he can, and three or four who could throw like he can. But those were 12 different people. <laughs> it sounds like I'm talking about Superman. When I got to Auburn, Pat Dye, the football coach, Bo Jackson's football coach, told me, Hal, you have the chance to coach the greatest athlete ever. I thought he was exaggerating. He wasn't. Bo was the only person I ever saw who could alter the geometry of a baseball field. The 90 feet, the 60 feet, 6 inches, those are all baseball measurements wonderfully implemented implemented to test a human's ability. But Bo upset those balances. 90 feet wasn't far enough for him. Expected home run distances weren't long enough for him. He would beat out two hoppers to short. He would make 300-foot throws. There was something to marvel at every single day. But then on one day, January 13th, 1991, Bo Jackson playing for the Oakland Raiders against the Cincinnati Bengals got one hit that took out his hip, and his NFL career was done. He limped along a little bit more in the Major League Baseball for a few years, but Bo Jackson, essentially real-life Paul Bunyan in the late 80s into 1990, by 1995 was out of professional sports. 
I think Bo Jackson is a living parable for all the greatest and most excellent things in our world. Right? Nothing else can rightly handle endless praises. No person, no relationship, no nation, no created thing could rightly be matched with endless praises. Not even little boy Dan needs to hear this, Bo Jackson. We have a hymn we sometimes sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. I remember being younger and being really weirded out by that hymn. Like a thousand tongues? What would? It's kind of a ghastly image. I don't know. What do you mean? What do I need a thousand tongues for? I don't. But I think this is the point of that hymn. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, right? I have one tongue. I have one mouth. And even if I spent my whole life praising our Lord, I wouldn't have overdone it. If I spent all my life praising Bo Jackson, I would have overdone it. If I spent all of my life using my one tongue, my one mouth to praise the Lord, I wouldn't have overdone it. Oh, if only I had a thousand, maybe I would have come close to giving him some fraction of the praise he deserves, right? Nothing else can rightly handle endless praises. We will never exhaust, though, the praiseworthiness of our God. He is the creator and the host of the banquet of creation. Nothing compares to his goodness. And that's what brings us to our second point. As we continue reading on in this, this psalm, we may think to ourselves that there's, there's, there's lots of examples we could give of what God does to show his goodness. You read in your Bible. You see he rescues Israel from Egypt. Right? That was a display of his steadfast love. Right? His patience and his forgiveness back in ages past And his patience and forgiveness he shows us. In 2022, going into 2023, that's a sign of his steadfast love. Maybe it's most exceptionally shown, at least in part, by the holiday we just celebrated about a week ago, Christmas. Where our holy God took on flesh, he came down was born, lived faithfully, trusting in God's steadfast love and faithfulness, unlike the rest of us. But then he took the punishment that the rest of us deserve, dying on a cross, be raised and ascending, continuing to be our great high priest for us weak people. And then because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with him. Right? This is his steadfast love. And this, this full drama, this full drama of the son taking on flesh, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of a humiliating death on a cross and then rising to glory and through his resurrection and ascension, giving us, we who are dead in our trespasses and sins, giving us new life. That's the goodness, the steadfast love of our great God. But our our passage actually puts the focus on on one specific aspect of this. You might just say it's it's his provision. See what it says there at the end of verse 6? 
Man and beast you save, O Lord. It's, it's possible you have a different translation that, that takes really what just straightforward the word save and says, kind of interprets it a bit. Man and beast you protect. Man and beast you provide for. Right? I think save is the right word. Man and beast are helpless without you. Every last creature is cared for by God. Every last creature has nothing but what God gives them. Every last creature only knows abundance because God's abundance is given to them. Right? If you want, if you're looking for like a Sunday afternoon Bible reading opportunity or assignment, I would recommend just meditate. Psalm 104. I'm just going to read a few highlights from Psalm 104, but it will deserve some more attention from you at some point later today or later this year at some point. Psalm 104 just begins by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You say, okay, give me some examples. How do we see your greatness, Lord? Well, if we skipped down a little bit to, say, verse 10... We hear that the Lord, uh, yeah, the psalmist speaking to the Lord says, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills, right? You're kind of getting taken into a nature documentary now. You see the, the springs gushing forth from the valleys, flowing between the hills. And then as you're following this stream going between the hills, suddenly into your view, the psalmist says, They give drink to every beast of the field. Beasts getting their, their drink from this stream that God has made to, gr- to gush forth. And to give even a specific example, the psalm goes on. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell and sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. I love that, that personification, that idea that just the whole earth is reveling in the goodness of being created by our, creature, by our creator. Right? The earth is satisfied with your, the fruit of your work. I'll just read on without comment. The psalmist says, You cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Just coming up with different animals. See how God is caring for man and beasts. It all comes to a head in verse 27 where the psalmist says, These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. And just to emphasize all of our utter dependence on our creator and provider, verse 29 says, When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. 
When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. And so this truth actually makes David switch his focus a little bit as we get to verse 7. The focus moves from in verses 5 and 6, we might say how, how vast the goodness of God is. To hear in verse 7 how valuable it is. How precious, he says in verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. And what makes it so precious? Well, it's essentially what we just said. But here he puts it differently in verse 7. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. To take refuge in the, the shadow of the Lord's wings, that's a, that's a striking picture. Here suddenly God is compared to, to a bird in a way that young birds are protected under the, the wings of their parents. So are all the children of mankind protected and made secure under God's watchful care. Right? Often in Scripture, this this image, this metaphor, right? We find refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's, it's used for the faithful who are declaring their trust. I find my refuge in the shadow of your wings. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's, it's the way people will declare that they are dependent upon God. But notice here that this isn't just saying the faithful Take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's not just the children of righteousness take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's not just the children of Israel take refuge in the shadow of your wings. No, it's the children of mankind. All the offspring of Adam take refuge. They're finding refuge under these wings. That's what he said just a moment ago. Man and beast the whole creation depending upon God, right? This is really the whole testimony of Scripture. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44 and 45. He gives us this command to, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why are we to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Well, because God sends his rain and he makes his sun to rise and shine on them. It's the whole children of mankind. Yeah, we know there's plenty of evil, right? This psalm started off with that meditation on the wicked. Children of mankind can be quite opposed to God. And yet, even in their ignoring God, even the wicked are ultimately taking refuge in the shadow of the wing of the one they don't want to recognize. Right? This is, when John read our scripture reading earlier from Acts 17, right? Paul had made the same testimony. He said that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind, life and breath 
and everything. So what, what do the children of mankind, what do we experience as we take refuge in the shadow of our Lord's wings? Well, that's what David goes on to describe here in this next verse. We're going to see that life as a creature in God's creation is no meager experience. The, the cupboard is not empty. Right? Because what do we do? David says in verse 8, They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. The cupboard is not empty, as I already said. Let me read that again. They feast on the abundance, the abundance. They, They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. Where we live shows that God has an abundant house. Creation's abundance reflects the abundance of its creator. So as we, we feast on it and drink it up, maybe literally talking about maybe some of the feasting you've been able to enjoy here over the Christmas and New Year's, or whether it's just deeper or more metaphorical, right? Just the delights that meet us in this world. We, feel, we see that it's an abundant world that God has made. Um, to quote uh, the Lion King, right? Or at least the song from the Lion King, right? There's more to be seen than can ever be seen, more to do than can ever be done. That's a description of our world, the world God created, It's an abundant house in which we've been welcomed into. And as we see, none of the goodness, whether we're talking specifically about food and drink or family, friends, beauty, excitement, whatever it may be, none of these, this psalm wants us to see, none of these are self-provided. This banquet is not a potluck. It's a feast prepared by God. It shows off not our resourcefulness and our self-sufficiency, but God's goodness. He is the Lord of the banquet. We are the guests. And now, now there's good reason that we do potlucks. Kind of give a quick practical application here. We do potlucks. Uh, they're a great thing to do, whether we're doing the soup and pie or second Sunday potlucks or whatever we do. There's actually a deep theological reason to do potlucks. It's because it's, 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 it's admitting the same truth we're, he, we're hearing here. That we really all are receiving from the same source. And so we can bring what he's provided for me, what he's provided for you, what he's provided for you, right? One of us brings a quiche. One of us brings some Sprite. One of us brings some brownies. It's all wild, varied assortment of what we bring to these potlucks. We bring them together all because God's been the one providing for us, right? It's all an affirmation of what we're hearing here. 
that we are feasting all on the abundance of his house. So we are all receiving drink from the river of his delights. But at this point, we need to bring up that question that I alluded to earlier, I hinted at earlier. If the world and life are so delightful, why are so many of us unsatisfied? Like maybe you're asking yourself that specifically. Like, why am I so unsatisfied? Or maybe it's more of an observation of the world. Why is there so much discontentment and greed and coveting out there? I think one answer is that we want the abundant house, but not the host. We want the river of delights, but not the fountain. And so we find ourselves foolishly refusing to ever give up comforts for closeness to our host. I think the Bible presents to us that the normal kind of spiritual rhythms of being people who receive from God are both feasting and fasting, work days and rest days, right? We Abundance, which we receive with thankfulness, and then an ability to refrain, feasting and fasting. But many of us are experts on the feasting and not the fasting. Experts on taking in, but not on going without. We, we only want the gift and never are even daring enough to say, is the giver enough? Paul makes no sense to us, if we're being honest, in Philippians. When we read Philippians 3 and we hear him say, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You think, good for you, Paul. I'm going to hold on to my stuff. Right? The prophet Habakkuk sounds like a crazy person, I think, to us when he says at the end of his little book, Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19, he says, though the, trig, though the, fig, tree, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Right? Though I am in the midst of a deep famine and drought, He says, yet I will still rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Paul and Habakkuk, they sound crazy, but they aren't. They know it's the source that satisfied The point of the feast is to know the host. That's what David admits even in this next verse, in verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. God himself is the ultimate 
an unending source. He is the fountain. Right? The greatest gifts, and as great as they are, are never in and of themselves able to satisfy. Right? They run out. God is the only one who can give life and never be drained of life. Right? Think about this. Mothers, you're amazing. Giving life as you have. Has it drained you at all? A bit. God is the one who gives life and is never more empty of life after giving it. He pours, but never runs drier. He creates life as no cost to his own life. Right? He's the one upon whom all rely and yet is not reliant upon anyone. Right? In, with you is the fountain of life. Where does it all come from? Him. It's in his light, as verse 9 says, that we see light. Yes, we have light. Yes, we have knowledge of truth. Yes, we have understanding. But all knowledge is God's knowledge. We only know it as a gift from him. Everything, and we mean everything, comes from the goodness of our boundless host. So this brings us quickly to our our last point, that our lives should reflect and recognize the goodness of our hosts. If every creature, if all the children of mankind are feasting on God's goodness, what separates the godly from the unrighteous? Is there the wicked that David spent these first four verses Describing in such insightful depth, is there no difference between them and David, who's here described as the servant of the Lord? I think we can quickly establish that there's two differences. One to come and one right now. All the children of mankind are receiving from God's goodness. But there's a difference, one right now and one to come, for the godly and the wicked. One's maybe illustrated well in a parable Jesus tells, right? This difference has to come. Jesus in Matthew 13 tells a parable about a sower who's spreading seeds, but then weeds are kind of, uh, are kind of worked in amongst the, the good crop. And people are like, well, should we go in and kill the weeds right away? No, no, no. Instead of killing the weeds immediately, the sower lets them grow in the same fertile soil as the crop until it's time for the harvest. The weeds get all the same benefits as the crop up until a certain point. But then Jesus, in explaining the parable, he says, uh, the, the, the field is the world and the good seed the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, right? And they, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, right? So they're both growing up together. Same abundant soil that they're growing in. You might say the same provision from their good Lord. Oh, but just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Right? There will be a distinction. There will be a harvest. But we don't live in that distinction now. We're not there yet. So what is the difference right now? I think it's simply this. The lives of God's people humbly recognize the goodness of our Lord and hosts. 
The wicked arrogantly feast on the abundance of God's house, but in their pride refuse to acknowledge their Lord and hosts. So we see this difference in maybe some really subtle, not glamorous, not ways that are going to make headline news. It's in little habits like prayer before a meal. I mean, that rote thing, right? Come, Lord Jesus, be our guests, and let these gifts to us be blessed. I said that like growing up all the time. It would sometimes be a joke. How fast can I say it? Right? This, me, this prayer before a meal. But like genuine thankfulness, recognizing that you, know, you may have worked hard. You may have slaved over something to make that meal. Oh, this is, I didn't provide this for myself. We didn't provide this for ourselves. Right? That humble recognition has come there. Also, again, that unnoticed habit of being willing to go without. Maybe it's a genuine habit and practice of fasting, or maybe it's just sacrificial generosity to the fact that you can receive such good and abundant gifts with thankfulness, and you can also give them away and go without when the call for love requires or the opportunity to suffer with Christ calls for it. Right? These are the subtle little things that show that we see and trust and know the goodness of our host, right? Nothing compares to his goodness. Everything we have comes from his goodness. So in what ways do our lives recognize the goodness of our host? Let me pray. Father, you are good and you do good. We live in your goodness. Make us people who see your goodness. We see the grace we've received, that by grace we've been saved, that the, the, your light has entered the darkness to come and seek and save the lost. Oh, this is your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We are not self-made in a physical way. We are not self-made in a spiritual way. We are utterly dependent on you. Give us eyes to see this. And as we go into this year, make us ones who live accordingly, just relying on you, receiving from you with thankfulness and humility day after day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.